Father, thank you for this word. It's a challenge to us. And it's a bomb to us. We would be lost without this word. Ministers to our souls. And it changes us. It gives us wisdom for today. It gives us hope for eternity. And so, Father, would you be pleased to use what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago to accomplish those purposes in us today. And even as we approach this word, we want to approach it worthily. And so as we open these books, this book, with these hands, we understand that the hands that open the book are stained with sin. Even perhaps this morning, in preparation for worship, we have sinned with hand or mouth or mind. And Father, would you be pleased to apply the blood of Jesus Christ to those sins? For those of us who have been saved, would you apply that blood so that our fellowship with you is restored? And we come with full delight and without reservation to you to hear your word. And for those of us who have not been saved by Jesus Christ and who do not have his imputed righteousness counted to us. Would you be pleased to save us, to lead us to repentance where we turn away from our sin and to Christ as our only hope? And Father, would you even be pleased to do that through this message this morning? So would you guide us and would you direct us as we come now with cleansed hands and the pure hearts that have been granted to us through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In December, Canada passed Bill C-4, which outlawed what is called conversion therapy or reparative therapy for counselors. That bill, C-4, became law eight days ago on January 8th. The bill, and now law, is, as I mentioned, concerned about conversion therapy, which is a practice by which people with homosexual desires and actions are reoriented and converted, if you will, to heterosexual behavior. Now, the difference between what we believe and what conversion therapy practice is subtle but significant. Our goal is not to see those who are entrapped and enslaved in homosexual sin converted to heterosexual behavior. Our goal is to see sinners converted to Jesus Christ. And from that conversion, that all of their lives are transformed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. It's subtle, 
but it's tremendously significant. One pastor explained the danger of Bill C-4, now law, this way. In the preamble of the bill, he writes, it says that the belief that, quote, heterosexuality, cisgender gender identity, and gender expression that conforms to the sex assigned to a person at birth are to be preferred over other sexual orientations, gender identities, and gender expressions is a myth. So according to Canadian law, as of January 8, the belief in God's design for marriage and sexuality is now officially seen as myth. Further, the bill defines conversion therapy as, quote, a practice, treatment, or service designed to change a person's sexual orientation to heterosexual, change a person's gender identity to cisgender, change a person's gender expression so that it conforms to the sex assigned to the person at birth, repress or reduce non-heterosexual attraction or sexual behavior, repress a person's non-cisgender gender identity, or repress a, or reduce a person's gender expression that does not conform to the sex assigned to a person at birth, end quote. So the pastor goes on. This definition is intentionally broad. It can clearly be used against any preacher or elder who either speaks against homosexuality and transgenderism or who counsels a person to obey Christ and abandon their homosexual, transgender actions and lifestyle. This means that as of January 8, it will be against the law to preach, teach, or counsel regarding God's design for marriage and sexuality in Canada. Quote, Everyone who knowingly, this is again from the law, everyone who knowingly causes another person to undergo conversion therapy, including providing conversion therapy to that person, is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term not more than five years. Similarly, everyone who knowingly promotes or advertises conversion therapy is guilty of an indictable offense and liable to imprisonment for a term of not more than two years. End quote. A pastor friend of mine in Canada emailed me a couple days before that bill became law, informing me about what was coming, and then asked this. This law is meant to outlaw conversion therapy, but the wording is so vague that it captures so much more than that. Please pray for those of us who ministers God's truth here in Canada and for our biblical counseling ministry, particularly as we could easily get caught up in this, even though we do not practice what is known as conversion therapy. The attack against Christians is not just in Canada. It's a little closer to home as well. Recently, the city council in West Lafayette, Indiana, began considering Ordinance 3121, which, quote, proposes to ban unlicensed counselors 
from practicing conversion therapy on minors enforced by $1,000 fines. This ordinance defines conversion therapy as, quote, any practices or treatments that seek to change an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity and counseling as techniques used to help individuals make decisions relating to personal growth, vocational, family, and other interpersonal concerns. So counseling is just helping somebody make a decision. Which, if I were to ask the question, who's a counselor, all of us ought to be raising our hands at that point. So the explanation of that ordinance continues this way. Ordinance 3121 therefore means that the city would be able to fine people $1,000 if they help minors make decisions based on religious beliefs. Since 3121 calls it exposure to serious harms and risks, it also leaves the door open for CPS to remove children from the homes of parents who don't affirm their children's gender identity or sexuality. Ordinance 3121 would legislate your speech and behavior if you satisfy two conditions. One, you are not licensed or governed by the state of Indiana's professional licensing agency. And two, you employ techniques used to help individuals learn how to solve problems and make decisions related to personal growth, vocational, family, and other interpersonal concerns. So, this person says, ask yourself this question. Are you licensed by the state of Indiana? If not, do you help individuals make decisions? If so, you would be governed by Ordinance 3121. The city would disallow minors the freedom to seek their own counsel, even from their own family members. And this is happening in a city, West Lafayette, Indiana, that has been trying to figure the adverb to use, tremendously, significantly, astoundingly helped by the ministry of Faith Baptist Church and their biblical counseling ministry. Honestly, it looks like West Lafayette has just taken out a target, put it on Faith Baptist and said, we want you out of our community. The attacks against biblical teaching and homosexuality and gender issues are potentially even closer. In 2014, Houston Mayor Anise Parker issued a subpoena demanding that pastors submit the manuscripts of any sermons dealing with homosexuality or gender identity as part of a non-discrimination ordinance. The subpoena was ultimately overthrown in court, but all three of these situations, and frankly, we could give dozens more examples, are not the final battle against biblical teaching on sexuality in our culture. They're the first shots in the skirmish and battle against biblical sexuality. It's the start. It's not the end. And we can expect much more conflict, opposition, and struggle in this fight to obtain biblical perspective on sexuality. In support of the churches in Canada particularly, and the suffering that they may be facing in the very near future, many pastors around the United States today are taking some time to think with their congregations about what biblical sexuality looks like and how we ought to be thinking about that.
Some churches are also calling for Christians to reassert our right to free speech and religious liberty and religious freedom. There is a place for those things, but we regularly talk about sexuality and gender kinds of issues, both from this pulpit and in our CBCD conference. And there's lots of information on our website about that. I don't know that we need to immediately go back to that. Just a year ago, we were in Romans chapter 13. We spent a lot of time talking about the government. I don't know that we need to go back to that. I think we've got a good base to think through those issues. Instead, I want to take us this morning to Paul's last letter. These are almost his final words. Only one more chapter after this. 22 verses that follow what we're going to be looking at this morning. This is... This is Paul's last reminder to his protege about what ministry ought to look like and how he ought to be equipping the people and what he might be expecting in the church and in the community. And he is very clear about what life is going to be like in the last days before Christ returns. And then how we ought to be thinking about those days and how we ought to be ministering in the midst of those days. And if those words were appropriate for Timothy and Ephesus 2,000 years ago, they sure seem all the more appropriate for us today. As we look at this chapter this morning, here's what we're going to find. We can always expect opposition of every kind. Don't think, I'm a Christian. Life will be easy now. It's just gotten simple. There's not going to be any pushback. There's going to be respect. It's never been that way. Except for a really small fraction of time in this country. And that is changing rapidly. And what we're experiencing now, frankly, is just conformity to the way God's people have always been treated throughout the history of all the rest of the world. We can always expect opposition of every kind. The other thing we're going to find is this. The Bible is always adequate for both us and those, of, those who are in opposition to us. This book that you hold in your laps is adequate for everything you're going to need to make it through these days. There are three realities that Paul's going to point to in this chapter. Any one of these could be its own sermon, or perhaps a series of sermons. But I want you to see this in its entirety, so we will make haste. And so after the sermon, you may say, but you didn't talk about, that's right, I wanted to get you out before 4 o'clock. So so we're not going to talk about everything here, but I hope you will see the big overview of the reality of living in this changing, unchanging world. Here's the first reality. It's the reality of opposition from this world. The reality of opposition from this world. In chapter 2, the apostle had been talking about the significance of ministry and the power of ministry, the effectiveness of ministry, the priority of ministry. And he points at the end of the chapter about the responsibility of believers to work for those who are ensnared by sin and seeing them Loosed from the grip of Satan and his deluding influence. So he says, verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be 
quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's a helpful word as we come into chapter 3. If perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. They're trapped. They're ensnared. And it's our goal, it's our responsibility, it's our privilege to work in such a way that they will be loosed and freed. And he transitions from that topic into what we're going to see in chapter 3. And notice the very first word in chapter 3, but. So we have this worthy goal of seeing people loosed from the things that have been ensnaring to them by Satan and his deluding influence. And that word but is a reminder to us that caring for sinners is valuable, but it is not without difficulty and it is not without opposition. Realize this, he says. That word realize is actually the word know. Know this. Think about this. Be aware of the reality of some basic life circumstances. And what he's going to talk about is just the difficulty about living in this world. And, and we like to think that the world is getting better and better and improving so well. And, and we like things like indoor plumbing and hot water on demand. Yesterday, uh, we'd been having some trouble with our shower. And so I tried to clean up the shower head and get it working better. And that just wasn't working. So went to Lowe's yesterday and bought a new shower head. And the difference is like, wow, we have water in our bathroom. That's so great. Regine said, you're going to love the shower. I got out. I said, I love the shower. We love hot water on demand. We love antibiotics. We love book publishers. We love Amazon deliveries. The world's just getting better, isn't it? And then we look at the social condition of the world. And it is hard to believe that things are getting better. In fact... They won't get better. That's Paul's point in these opening verses. In the last days, difficult times will come. It's coming. Don't think that you're going to escape difficulty. It's the reality of living in a fallen world. It is coming. And and Paul is simply affirming what he has written elsewhere and what... Frankly, all the other biblical writers have talked about. Chapter 4 of his first letter to Timothy. But the Spirit, verse 1, explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in. It's difficult. People are going to fall away. People are going to wipe out in relation to the faith. It's not going to get easier. It's going to get harder. This is, this is Romans chapter one. We won't go back and unpack that again, but it's, it's Romans chapter one. It's, it's second Peter chapter three earlier in the chapter from which we read. Listen to what Peter says. Three, three. Know this. First of all, it's a priority. Know this. First. 
that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues justice from the beginning of creation. Where is Jesus? His coming is a pipe dream. I read it this morning, just part of my regular Bible reading. Opened up my plan and it said Psalms 8 to 11 for this morning. I read Psalm 10. The wicked boasts of his heart's desires and the greedy man curses and spurns the Lord. The wicked and the haughtiness of his countenance does not seek him. And all of his thoughts are there is no God. And, and the, the rest of that psalm expands on that theme. Jesus talks about it. Matthew 23 and excuse me, Matthew 24 and Matthew 25, the Olivet Discourse. It, it's not going to get better. And Paul says here that the difficult times are going to come. They will come. There's a certainty to it. There's a promise to it. And they will come in the last days, he says. Now, you can't really translate well from the Greek into the English what the Greek says because you would everybody would say, that's a grammatical error. But in the Greek, it says this, in last days, difficult times will come. There's no article. There's no the word there. And Paul, I think, removes the article just to, to, to say he's talking about a category of time. He's not thinking about a specific time, like in the very last days, like right before Jesus comes, like two weeks before he gets here, it's going to get really bad. He's saying in, 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 in last days kinds of times. And I think actually what he would have us to think about is from the ascension of Christ to the return of Christ, it's going to be bad. It's always going to be bad. This is just the tenor of it. The world is always opposed to God. And note that we know that he's not just thinking about the very last days. Because later in this chapter, he assumes that this stuff is already going on. Verse 6. There are among those some who enter into households, enter present tense and captivate present tense weak women weighed down. These men, verse 8, also present tense oppose the truth. It's already happening. It was happening in Ephesus then. It will happen at the end of time. This is just the reality. And then we read the list. That's a tough list, isn't it? Verses 2 to 4. 19 qualities of last days kinds of times. And then verse 5, I think two summary qualities of last times. Several of these traits that we're going to find in verses 2 through 4 seem to form pairs. So, for instance, in verse 2, there are lovers of self, lovers of money. Also, verse 2, there are those who are boastful and arrogant. Verse 3, there are those who are unloving and irreconcilable. Those, those seem to go together. Verse 4, there are those who are treacherous and reckless. Those seem to be paired together. You take all 19 of these characteristics, and there seems to be a theme of self-centeredness that can be seen in just about every aspect, every characteristic in this list. And frankly, you do not have to look very far to find examples of this in our, in our culture, do you? Disobedience to parents, you have to look far. Oh, no further than my house, thank you. And you don't even have to look very far to see particular examples. You, you don't have to look very far to find cultural examples. I mean, that, that, that this is just the tenor of the age. That this is pervasive. It's not just isolated 
examples. Well, I can find one here. And well, yeah, I think that might be an example of treachery. No, it's just like you can hardly pick up your newspaper and read it, can you? It's just so discouraging. It's just we find this selfish rebellion all over the place. And we can summarize it all by what Paul says in verse 5. The people who practice these things are purporting to holding to a form of godliness. This is the right thing to do. This is what tolerance is. This is what patience is. This is the good thing to do. How could you not embrace this? See that particularly in the realm of sexual identity and homosexual marriage and all the things that are related to that. But it goes beyond that as well, doesn't it? And where does this, where does this form of godliness that the world comes from, where does, where does that come from? He says they hold to a form of godliness although they have denied its power. In other words, they are working against the power and authority that God says, this is how you get to be godly. They're rejecting it and repudiating it. And when Paul says they deny its power, I wonder... I don't know this for a fact. I can't prove it. But I wonder if he's thinking back to his first letter to Ephesus. Not the Timothy letters, but the Ephesian letter. Listen to what he says in chapter 1 of Ephesians. I pray, he says, that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, verse 18. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working, that's another word for power, of the strength, another word for power, of his might, another word for power, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, When Paul says they've denied the power, I think he is saying, remember what I said about the power for transformation? It's rooted in the gospel. They've run from the gospel and they say it's godly and good. Is that a sign of our time? It sure seems like it. Brothers and sisters, verses 2, 3, And four are the kinds of things that people do when they reject the gospel. When you turn away from Christ, this is what you get. When they reject the gospel, we should expect them to do nothing but this. They're trapped. That's the end of chapter two. They're ensnared. They're blinded. They can do nothing else. And remember what Paul says. Realize this. Know this. This is the reality of their condition and their hearts. They can do nothing 
else. Where does that stuff come from? Paul gives us a hint as to what he thinks the source of those rebellious sins is. Notice the first of that list. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, a pair of loves. Notice the end of the list, verse 4. They will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Another pair of loves. This forms what? Biblical interpreters call an inclusio. It's, it's a pair of brackets. And what Paul means us to understand is everything in between is connected to a false love. These activities come out of false desires, false loves, false motives. From first to last, these sins are a reflection of people's illicit loves. We might say that they are sinning because Those things are the things that they want and love. They do what they do because they want or love what they love. And they love what they love because they believe what they believe. And at the heart of their belief system is this. I do not want God. I am a better God than God. This is what Jesus himself said would be. In this world, John chapter 3, this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. I don't want Christ. I do want my sin. And what Paul is writing is simply an amplification of this. This is, brothers and sisters, the unchanging nature of our world. This doesn't change. This is the reality. This is always the way it has been. This is the way it always will be until Christ returns. We must not be surprised. We must not be shocked. We must not be dismayed when we see these acts of rebellion. We must realize this. This is... The world, this is the only thing the world can do when it has rejected Jesus Christ. I want you to notice something else about the difficulty of this day. Verses 1 to 5, it's all around us in the world. Verse 6, it's not just in the world, it's coming into the church. For among them... Among those people who commit those kinds of things are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins led on by various impulses. They come into households. They come to captivate people who are in the church and lead them astray from Christ. Paul mentions a particular group of people, weak women weighed down with sins. Don't take that to mean that Paul's dogging on all women and all women are weak. That's not his point. But he's saying there are people, some women in the Ephesian church who are particularly susceptible. And he tells us why they are susceptible because they, they're weighed down with sins. They're, they're continuing to carry the guilt from past sins into the present. And, and, and they continue to be captivated by 
a variety of impulses, desires, and longings for sin, and they're never able to come to a knowledge of the truth about what Christ has provided for them. And they are particularly susceptible to being led astray. This is exactly what the Apostle warned the Ephesian church might happen. The last time he talked to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20, he says this in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Watch out. It's not just out there that's the problem, but it's in here where there's a potential problem. We need to be vigilant about the teaching of the world. We need to be asking ourselves, what am I taking in that is influencing from the world the way I'm thinking about life? But brothers and sisters, we need to be even more vigilant and more protective about the church. His first letter to... Timothy, he says in chapter 3 that we are the pillar and support of the truth. If we don't defend the truth, who will? We need, to, we need to watch and guard and protect. More than one church has been destroyed by creeping theological laxity. I've been to Shepherd's Conference many times, and I don't know how many times I've heard John MacArthur say in that context when people have asked him, did you, did you think that you would spend your ministry defending the gospel? And he has said something like, I anticipated that I would have to defend the gospel. I didn't realize I'd have to defend the gospel from the church. And he's alluding to this very thing where, where the outside's coming in. And the opposition just isn't out there. It's potentially in here as well. We need to watch and be alert, be attentive. Realize difficult times are coming. That's the reality of opposition from the world. There's a second reality, and that is the reality of persecution from the world. The reality of persecution, not just opposition, but persecution. One bit of good news in this chapter is that the Ephesians were not acting like the world. They weren't doing verses 2 through 5. In fact, the apostle commends them now in verse 10. Notice he says, now you followed my teaching. You, You were different. You were following after me. To say that they were following him means that their lives were closely aligned to his. He was their example. They were little little Pauline reproductions. Little Pauls, they lived the way he did. Notice all the ways that they were aligned to him. You followed my teaching, the things that he explained to them about the gospel and about Christ and about living in this world. My conduct, that is his actions, purpose, that's motives and loves. Contrast to the loves of the world in verses 2 through 5. You, you followed my faith, that is biblical doctrine. Sound theological doctrine that leads to the truth. Find that in verse 8. Janice and Jambres opposed Moses. They were rejected in regard to the faith. The, the, the doctrine that comprises what faith in God, faith in Christ is all about. You followed patience. That is, they were non-retaliatory. They, 
They followed his love, love for Christ, love for the church. They followed his perseverance, that is an endurance, a bearing up while under a weight of affliction. And again, all this is in contrast to the loves of the world. The world caved, not these people. Now, as you read that list, verse 10, those all wrap around what we might call inner desires and inner longings, inner commitments and decisions. These are internal realities about the believers in Ephesus. The last two things that they followed in Paul's life are outside of them, not internal to them. That's verse 10. That's their own personal life, their their faith in Christ and the manifestation inwardly of what Christ is working in them. But verse 11 is what is happening to them from outside. And they followed Paul in that as well. They followed a pattern of Paul's difficulties, persecutions, he says in verse 11. That's ill treatment because of faith in Christ. And suffering. Sufferings is a broader term than persecutions. But it's often associated with what it what happens to someone when they follow after Jesus Christ. It's the result of being associated with Him. We suffer because of Him. And Paul alludes to the kind of suffering that he endured. He said, such things as has happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, he's probably alluding there to what happened to him in Acts chapter 14 when he was stoned and taken out of the city as a dead man, though he was not yet dead. And then he noticed, out of them all, the Lord rescued me. To this point, Paul had always been delivered from persecution, suffering, hardship. I think we need to be careful there and not allude and not and not suggest every time we're persecuted we'll always be safe. Every time we're suffer, God will take us out of the suffering and we'll live glorious lives. Every time we suffer, it'll be like Job chapter 42 and we get back double from what we've lost. In God's grace, sometimes it's that way. All you have to do is turn the page. Chapter 4, verse 17. At my first defense, no one suffered, no one supported me, but all deserted me. Verse 17, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished that all the Gentiles might hear and I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. I was, I was rescued so I could keep on preaching. Verse 18, and the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to His heavenly kingdom. Sometimes the way out of the suffering is to be taken to the kingdom through death. And in fact, that would be Paul's testimony shortly after he said amen on this letter. And so Paul said, you followed me, you copied the way I suffered church in Ephesus. And then verse 12, he broadens it out. It's not just about him. It's not just about Ephesus. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Along with the good news of the Ephesians' behavior and transformation is the sorrowful news You're going to suffer. It's a reality. Suffering is not right. It's not just. 
It is not appropriate. It will be condemned by Christ at the end. But brothers, it is also to be expected by every believer. Do you want to live godly in Christ Jesus? This is a place to say amen. Okay? So now that I've primed it. Do you want to live godly in Christ Jesus? You will be persecuted. Don't think. I'm sold out for Jesus. In my heart, I'm sold out. Life just got easy. I'm sold out for Jesus. Life got harder than I can possibly imagine right now. Why why is that going to be? Verse 13. But because evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. This world will not get better until Christ comes back. It is just going to get worse. And the more we are sold out for Christ, the more resistance, opposition, and persecution we can expect. If we are not suffering, I think this is the place where we might ask the question, is my testimony for Christ so miserably weak That the world doesn't see me as a problem. And they don't care about persecuting me. Because I'm really not an advocate for Christ. I'm not saying that's always the case. But I think it's something that we need to consider. Now I'm no different than you. I don't like pain. When it comes to pain, I'm a sissy. It's a good thing I'm not sick very often because that would be a real challenge for Ray Jean. <laughs> because I don't, I don't do that well. She mans up when she's sick a whole lot better than I do. I don't like suffering. I don't like pain. I don't like hard things. I like people to like me. My brothers and sisters, if we're going to follow Christ... This is what we must expect. There are a couple of things we need to keep in balance. A couple ideas that are helpful. One is, um, when we are persecuted, things have gone wrong. Evil has momentarily triumphed when good is suppressed and good is opposed. That's true. It's not the way God created this world at the beginning. That's a result of the fall. That's a result of sin. Evil is prevailing. But we do need to remember that those things are momentary and light. The success of evil is not permanent. The victory of Christ is permanent. The other thing we need to remember is that things are normal when we are persecuted. 
It has always been the way of the world and the way of Satan to rebel against God and his truth. And we can expect nothing else. In America, we, we have been graced with an uncommon season of freedom from persecution and an uncommon season of cultural blessing for being Christians. And that has lulled us into believing that it is our right not to suffer. And that is an American idea. It is not a biblical idea. The biblical idea is I have a right to suffer. And I need to expect that I will suffer. It's always been this way. In scripture and in church history. The apostle Andrew died roped to a cross. They roped him because... Roping him to a cross was a longer, more agonizing kind of death. And so it protracted his death. Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't consider himself to be worthy to die in the same manner as his Savior. The Apostle James was killed with a sword. John the Baptist and Paul beheaded. And in a few weeks, we're going to be at the end of chapter 11 of Hebrews, and we're going to see that over and over and over of those that suffered. It's true in church history as well. Ignatius, who was condemned to death, one of the early church fathers around 110 A.D., said this, It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name, come fire, cross, battling with beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. As the executioner changed Scottish reformer George Weishart to the stake in the 17th century, Weishart said this, For this cause I was sent, that I should suffer this fire for Christ's sake. I fear not this fire, and I pray that you may not fear them that slay the body, but have not power to slay the soul. Pastor Keith's spiritual hero, George Whitfield, said on one occasion, I was honored with having a few stones, dirt, rotten eggs, and pieces of dead cats thrown at me. I'm glad you all don't throw dead cats at me. He said, I'm honored. I received many blows and wounds. One was particularly large and near my temples. I thought of Stephen. I was in great hopes that like him, I should be dispatched and go off in this bloody triumph to the immediate presence of my master. I don't know that it's true at Grace Bible Church, but I think of the church of Jesus Christ in America, I am fearful that we are more afraid of suffering than we are afraid of disparaging the name of Christ. Yes, persecution is wrong. Yes, persecution is from the evil one. Yes, persecution is hard. I am not making light of it. Don't hear that. But it is also expected, and it is normal, It is acceptable to exercise legal rights, but we dare not assume that our confidence and our peace and our safety are in the U.S. Constitution. They are not. 
We find in this passage the reality of opposition from the world, the reality of persecution from the world, the reality of hope for the world. What are we going to do when the world is dogmatically and at times violently opposed to us? When the world does, verses 2 to 5, against us, what are we going to do? What are we going to do when the world infiltrates the church? What are we going to do when we're persecuted for our faith and told to stop speaking the truth? Somebody emailed me about a week ago and said, hey, I don't know. I'm assuming you've heard about this thing going on in West Lafayette. What's Grace's position? What are we going to do? And I said, we're going to keep doing what we've always done. Nothing's changing. The unchangingness of the world is that it's always opposed to Christ. The changingness of the world, and I skipped over this in my notes, the changingness of the world is there's always something new to oppose us, right? Lots of different avenues at which we're opposing the church, so that's changing. And it seems like you can hardly get one response to one attack against the church before another one pops up. But it's all rooted in this unchanging opposition to God. What are we going to do? We're going to do verse 14. You, however, continue. Keep on. At Grace Bible Church this year, we're saying it this way. Excel still more. Keep on. Keep on in what, Paul? Continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, Scripture, the Bible, which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Keep on in the Bible. You cannot tell someone that their gender identity is different from what they were born with, says the world. Well, you can tell me I can't say that, but let me show you where the Bible says that. That's the only thing Paul says in verse 15 that can lead to wisdom and salvation in Christ. This is the only hope. Whenever I say that, I think about John Piper at the first a gospel uh, together for the gospel conference, and he said, "What are we going to do? Give them veggie tales? There's no hope outside these walls, but this book gives us everything. What does it give us? Well, it's inspired by God. That's breathed out by God, spoken by God, decreed by God. It, it emanates from Him, and it is profitable." It's fortuitous. It's advantageous. In what ways, Paul? Well, it will teach us. When we don't know where to go and what to do, it instructs us. It reproves us. It convicts us of sin and tells us what's right and what's wrong. It corrects us when we're wrong and says this is the way to go to right and truth after we've sinned. And it trains us in righteousness. So that not only are we declared righteous, but we are able to act righteously. And in summary, he says in verse 17, it makes us adequate and equipped. It prepares us for every part of life. 
And you want something else? You want Ordinance 3121 from West Lafayette City Council? Well, they call it Ordinance 3121 because somewhere along the line it's going to be 3122 and 23 and 24. They're just going to have to keep upgrading because they don't get it right. And this word has stood from the day it was breathed out by God. Inadequate for us. At the very point where the world is putting the most pressure on us, we must stand all the more on what the Scriptures say. We stand on the Scriptures because we have an accountability to God. He entrusted us with this book and said, this is the pillar, the church is the pillar and support of the truth. The church is what holds up and puts the Bible on the pillar and says, this is the way to go. And we have accountability before God. And Paul draws out that accountability. Just skip down to verse 1 of chapter 4. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. In other words, God's watching. And of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, the evaluator of the living and of the dead. And by His appearing and by His kingdom, I charge you by all these attributes of God and Christ, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. He means by that, whenever it's popular and whenever it's unpopular, preach it, reprove, rebuke, exhort. What else are we going to do? Because God's watching and He's evaluating. We have an accountability to Him. And then we stand on the Scriptures also because the world is trapped. Yeah, they're the enemy. But they're an enemy on whom we ought to have pity because, skip back to the last verse preceding this chapter 226, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil having been held captive by him to do his will. They're trapped, brothers and sisters. And some of you remember what it was like to be entrapped in sin. And the way out is through the gospel that is revealed in this word. What are we going to do? We're going to take this book and we are going to excel still more in teaching it, in preaching it, in discipling with it, in counseling with it, so that people can excel still more in their walk with Christ. What else can we do? In this changing, unchanging world. It's this book from this Savior and nothing else. Father, thank you for some reminders. Some of these reminders were hard for sure. Because we don't like suffering. We don't like difficulty. We don't like trial. It's hard. We get it. But we can... Be comforted from the reminder of the first part of this chapter that there's a sense in which nothing has gone wrong. This is just the latest attempt, the latest vain attempt of the evil one to supplant the victory of Christ and the authority of our Father in heaven. And it is just that. It is vain.
There are skirmishes which he will win. But he has already lost the battle. And might we rest in that, not be discouraged by it, and might we be resolute in counseling and discipling and equipping one another with this unchanging word, and then taking this unchanging word to a world that is unchanging in its resolute opposition to Christ and showing them a better way. So give us resoluteness, give us courage, and give us hope. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.